Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app thank you for all of you that have taken the time to rate and review this podcast and my new album my big break on itunes that helps me out tremendously, uh, and we're almost at 100 ratings on, on the podcast, which means there's a bonus episode that we're going to start putting together to put out very soon for when that hits 100, and then there will be more bonus episodes with more milestones, so, uh, so keep on um, doing those ratings and reviews for me if you haven't already. And um, other than that, I appreciate the support, guys, and enjoy uh, this week's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have uh, a, a new and already good friend of mine, um, Michael Angeletta. Thank you, Michael, for coming on the program. You're welcome, Shane. Uh, he is a professor here at the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. I actually didn't ask for your title. How, how do you... Uh, prefer. I was just, uh, we've already gotten to know each other pretty well, so um, I think this is going to be a pretty loose one. Yeah, most uh, people call me Mike. Uh, oh, most people call I, you Mike? I, even let my I mean, I call you Mike. I even let but my students call me Mike. Oh, okay. Yeah, Good. I'm, Mike. Not, I'm not into like, you know, the titles, but I'm a yeah, professor yeah. and uh, I'm also associate director of undergraduate programs. Awesome. Um, and we, so people always, um, a lot of times people ask me how I uh, meet all of these. Um, fancy how how i broke into these uh ivory towers that uh they keep the academics in and um and so mike and i met uh just what was that a month ago yeah i think it was early march and because he's actually working on um a project 
for the school right now. What's the thing you're going around? After this, we're going to be uh, filming Michael's project. Is this going to be something that's like an open online thing that anyone that, that my listeners could go to, or is it just going to be for the school? It may be at some point. So currently what we're doing is putting together an online course uh, for our students, and the course that I teach is called Why People Steal, Cheat, and Lie. And so there's a lot of, of human behavior in that course, obviously. Uh, then the other course that we're developing is the biology of happiness, which I think that the interview with you about humor is going to be great for that class. And so if any of these classes become an open class, certainly your listeners will be able to access them. I think eventually my class will be whether or not the biology of happiness becomes an open class. But I love open classes, so I'd like to do, see that happen. I absolutely love open ca- classes so much. I mean, I think that it, I, I mean, I, I think it really opens up uh, um, just the whole. Uh, there's so many people like me that have their jobs or whatever, or, and are doing whatever else that they're interested in. But maybe they want to learn about themselves or maybe they want to learn, you know, a new language or whatever else. And and now that it's available for people to just go online. And I mean, I've taken classes from Yale and Stanford. And this mm-hmm. is I I like barely graduated high school. And, <laughs> and now I, I get to I applied for college. Uh, and I didn't really want to go. I always wanted to be a stand up. It was just like kind of what is I, I applied for this. Um, UW Lacrosse in my hometown. I got rejected from this shitty little school in the. Yeah, it's a branch campus. Of, uh, yeah, 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 I, I mean it. it's okay, it's good, uh, whatever. People, uh, but you got re- you're saying you got rejected, got rejected from <laughs> a low end school that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you, you could come to ASU. I think we take 95 percent of applicants. <laughs> really? Yeah, I don't know if that's better odds or not. <laughs> 95 percent that's why they sometimes make fun of asu on programs like the simpsons and things like that but i think the reason is because the mission of asu is to include right and to try to help everybody get an education rather than exclude i mean isn't that how we're going to create real change in the world i feel like is at least giving people the opportunity i felt when i started this podcast i felt that in a lot of a lot of the stuff that I had learned, and we should definitely talk about because we've we've talked um, before about kind of um, you know what let's talk a little bit about that right now. Um, um, I'm I'm going to go all over the place in a second, uh, but we talked about kind of the change when we started reading some like evolutionary biology and psychology books and the impact that it had. And w- when I started doing that, I was like, oh, there, there's, I never had access to the, any of this information. I just happened to stumble across a couple of these books, and it changed the whole way that I look at everything. Mm. And and that's I'm kind of doing this just to kind of share that experience um, with people. But um, but anyway, I'll I'll hopefully if you ever do put it online publicly or whatever, I'll make sure and post the links to it. Great and everything. Um, so uh, so we met. Uh, here's the point of this story. We met Michael. Was you were tra- you've been traveling around all over the place interviewing like prostitutes in Vegas? Yeah, professors, stuff. prostitutes, zookeepers, you name it. Uh, I'm going to interview police chiefs soon. I mean, the idea is to is to get is almost to experience like you are go around and experience how things work and learn about it, and then students watch me 
sort of going through those experiences, and they learn that way. So I, I think of it as experiential learning, right? Right. I could sit there and lecture out of a book or even to a, to a camera, but alternatively, I think it's much more interesting to, to go about learning by experiencing things, right? Yeah. And, and that's the whole documentary phase that you see or the reality TV craze is people want to see real life, you know, to some Absolutely. extent. Absolutely. Well, it adds that personal attachment. I'm really, like we, t- we were talking about this last night, I and I think you as, as well obviously are just into like the really big ideas. That's what excites me. But a lot of people really attach to the personal stories so much more. And so if you want to get them... Yeah, I mean, a lot of like my reviews on iTunes and stuff uh, uh, where people seem excited about it is, is saying part of the fun of this is they're getting to hear me learning uh, a thing and go working through the ideas. That's uh, right. Yeah. You know? and, um, and so through this process, which let's here's what I want to do. I want to do a little Tarantino style. Uh, my, I think my listeners are used to me being all over the place okay. anyway, because I think this might help set it up a little more. Let's do a little backstory on you to how you got to wanting to undertake some of, because what you're doing now is a, a fair amount different than what you started out doing in your career. Completely right? different. Completely different. So let's let's go back. Let's do a little backstory. We'll build up to now and then how we met. Sounds great. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay. Do you want me to start or do you want to ask me yeah, a leading yeah. question? Why, why don't you start? Okay. So, um, you know, if we go back back, I, when I was um, in high school, I never learned about evolution or, you know, anything related to a deeper understanding of how people work, right, or what, how we came to be. You know, I grew up uh, Roman Catholic with a pretty straight uh, seven-day creation view. Right. And so imagine now I go off to college. Uh, I didn't even like biology. I took one of these non majors courses to just to get science out of the way. And then all of a sudden I started talking about evolution. And I said, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, right? literally, I had no idea. I went home, talked to my parents. I said, this changes my whole worldview. Right. Of, of everything I thought. And so I needed to know more about that. And I went through this whole phase of my life where I just I didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't know where I came from and what it meant anymore because that had changed everything. Um, and so then eventually I switched my major to bio and started to take biology. But as what happens with many people, when you start uh, you know, going down the line and you become more professional, you have to specialize, right? Right. And one of the Especially things... Especially because when was this? How, how many this years was, ago was uh, this? This was early 90s. So I graduated in 92 from, with my BS. Because it... I, I don't know if, if I'm accurate in this, but it seems like, especially back then, it was everything specialized, 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 and now it seems like people are branching out and doing a little more interdisciplinary Yeah, interdisciplinary work is huge to. now because okay. people are realizing that in order to answer big questions or address big problems, you have to connect different fields, right? There's no one field that's going to be able to, to do it. Right. And so people are working as part of these big interdisciplinary teams. In fact... So the grant that I currently have from the National Science Foundation has like four different principal investigators, we call them, four different professors that work together on this problem with slightly That's different expertises, right? That's the ever, principal, principal investigator. Right. Yeah, it's the PI is the jargon, right? <laughs> but, you know, basically researchers, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and then we all have our graduate students, so we all have – it's like a team, right? And that's, that's the future of big, big science is teams working together. So back, so back when I was – in, in college, and then I went to graduate school, you know, I became more and more specialized, and 
I ended up being channeled into a boyhood passion I had about snakes. I loved snakes growing up. When I realized that there was a guy at my school that actually made a living studying snakes, I was like, wow, I want to know about biology. I'm interested in this evolution stuff, and I love snakes. So why don't I study the evolution of you know, snakes, you know, snake behavior, snake whatever? Turns out snakes are really hard to work with. You know, it's not easy to find a bunch of snakes to do research <laughs> with. And so I ended up going to work in a lab where some people worked with snakes, but most and people studied. Wait, where were you at this time? So this, this where I went was the University of Pennsylvania okay. for grad school. And in that lab, most people worked with lizards, which are very closely related to snakes. Um, and so, you know, I, was, I still fed my passion to work with reptiles. Um, but then by chance, a series of chance events, I just got channeled further and further into specific questions about them, right? And at the time, people were studying uh, the way they regulated their body temperature because it's totally different from the way we do it. You know, we you know, eat a lot of food. We have a really high metabolism. We produce a lot of heat, and then we try to keep as much of that heat as possible unless we're overheating, and then we try to dump that heat pretty quickly. And so we're what we might call endothermic, right, where we generate all this heat from within, whereas lizards, like the vast majority of animals, are ectothermic. And so what people were really interested in is how did they differ? And for like the last 40 years, there's been a huge amount of research on how ectothermic animals use behavior to regulate their temperature almost as well as we do, um, and then how that influences the constraints on when they can be out about like feeding and you know, hunting or mating or whatever they do. And that is more or less how I got channeled deeper and deeper into an area that, you know, at first it was interesting to me as a kid, but, you know, if you say to yourself, do I want to study this for 20, 30, 40 years? Yeah. The answer is probably no for anything, right? <laughs> that you're right, interested right. in as a kid. But the more you become an expert in the field, the more you're expected to continue doing that. And it's, it's the path of least resistance. Yeah. I was actually, um, uh Listening to um, an audio book, um, the the brain that changes itself, I think is the name of it. Um, but but uh, I was, lis- it was it was talking about how um, uh, the different ways to stimulate the mind as as it gets older. You know, they talk about sometimes um, people l- lose a little bit of their cognitive abilities while aging, and people thought that was like set in stone. Well, it turns out that it, as long as you keep on generating new ideas and getting interested in, in, in new things, it doesn't seem like that's the case at all. It seems like the, the brain can keep on being stimulated and keep growing and everything. And they actually, w- one of the interesting, I don't remember exactly what the study was, but it was something along the lines of they found that the people that had the worst amounts of like atrophy and, and um, problems and degeneration in the brain were actually... Um, people in highly specialized fields, and actually it, it was the people that were the top <laughs> in their highly specialized fields because not only uh, because they were they were so good and they were the person to go to, the, the, so they, they really focused and they really just did this thing and didn't branch out into anything else, but not only that, but because they were at the top, people wouldn't question them. Yeah, they weren't challenged, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, so they that's were just a really never good point. Challenged. Yeah, so I guess you could say what I've been doing for the last, I don't know, five years or so is trying to constantly reinvent myself. Uh, because I can, right? I'm a full professor. I have tenure. And this is one of the, you mentioned the Ivory Tower earlier. This right. is one of the beauties of the Ivory Tower, right? <laughs> you know, we have to teach. We give back. We have to do certain things. But uh, uh, we have a tremendous amount of freedom to explore what interests us. So a professor is one of the greatest jobs on earth. For that reason, and uh, I've gotten involved in collaborations with people in our, our sustainability school on happiness and how we can, you know, c- 
create models that predict what people could be doing to be happier in their environment. Um, I've gotten involved with collaborators in Australia who are interested in the evolution of sports science and um, uh, how we could model strategies for soccer players to, you know, say, score a penalty kick in a World Cup or something like that. Gotten involved with, you know, this class on evolutionary psychology. And all this is just ways of sort of trying to keep my brain stimulated. and But applying the kinds of ecological and evolutionary concepts that I started out studying with lizards to humans, right? Right. Well, can you can you tell me why every girlfriend that I've ever had seems to have an inability to thermal regulate themselves and they're <laughs> always either like too cold or too hot even though the temperature is the exact same in the Yeah, uh, as, as, so so in other words like you're comfortable but your mate is uh, yeah, is complaining. Yeah, it's all and yeah. it's always like yeah. it, and it's not predictable. It's not right. like they're always cold, or they're always too hot or anything like that. It's just all over the place. Right. So so I'm the guy that's always too hot like i'm walking around in boxer shorts my wife's like put some clothes on someone's coming over i say well look if i were at a pool right now this would be an appropriate thing to wear i just pretend it's a swimsuit (laughs) i'm good but women don't go for that argument no no she doesn't go for that but you know a lot of that comes down to differences in metabolic rates right so you have a high metabolic rate you're going to generate a lot of heat men and women differ in how their metabolism is on average but for a particular person you know say for a man you might have a an unusually high or low metabolic rate. And then there's differences in, you know, hair. The amount of hair that you have is going to keep your, your body warmer, like if you have armpit hair. Or... Even in humans? Yeah, I mean, don't you find... I don't know about you, but and we're on camera, so, or not, we're on camera, we're on audio, so the world's going to find out this. But, you know, when I go on a plane, sometimes I sweat a lot because my arm, you know, my armpits have a lot of hair there, right? Yeah, So yeah. I find if I trim that, Man, it's much more comfortable. Oh, really? Right? Because it doesn't well, trap the heat. My, maybe that's what part of it is. Because I, I'm really happy I don't have that problem because I'm a stand-up comedian who has to go up and, well, you know, you're a professor. You have to give lectures yeah, in front of people. Yeah, you lift your arms a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you, like, you manscape it, right? Yeah, yeah. I do. <laughs> it, it, it then, what it does is it decreases the amount of insulation and you feel, you feel more comfortable, right? It's so, almost like wearing a special shirt that has more, more breathing. It does the same thing. So uh, is it, I mean, this might not be the case that women are kind of all over the map sometimes with this, but I, but I, I think that it might be. Is, is it the case that, uh, that depending on the cycle, is that, is that changing thermal so, regulation at all? So I don't know the specific science there, but it's, it's extremely plausible that the cycle is going to affect metabolic activity, right, that right. the women is doing for reproduction, and so it's certainly going to have an impact on the heat they generate. Um, it may also have an impact on the set point, right, the body temperature they try to maintain. And, and so the point here is that everyone's different. There's going to be, on average, a difference between men and women, but then there's also going to be differences among men and among women. And, you know, let's say you're the kind of guy that goes off and spends a lot of time in the desert, which I know I moved here about five years ago. And oh, we're, we're at, uh, I, yeah, we did mention we're at Arizona State University. Yeah, we're at Arizona right State. And it's, you know, it gets up to 120-something in the summer. In the shade, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's air temperature in the shade. So it's pretty hot. And I came from the East Coast where it was warm and muggy, but nowhere near as high as that. And I've noticed that, I, you know, my physiology has changed. You know, I haven't measured it, but I just sort of anecdotally notice. Right, that, you've acclimated. Yeah, I've acclimated yeah. quite a bit. And it's the kind of thing that would happen if you were to go stay in base camp, you know, and climb Everest for three months. You'd notice all kinds of changes in in the number of blood vessels that you have and, you know, heart rate, blood supply, all that stuff. So I, I think that 
people are different, right? With respect to the way they thermoregulate. Is so these lizards, they're cold-blooded, which it doesn't actually mean their blood is cold. Why do they call them cold-blooded? Yeah, so the cold-blooded, just... cold-blooded is a really outdated term, right? So when I grew it, up, it was the same way. It's uh, like, like if, if, if lizards could talk, they'd be like, that's racist. You right, can't, right, that, yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's that animalist. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. animalist. So, so, so lizards You're saying they, we're heartless and we don't care about anything. That's right. So... So when, when I was growing up, and I still have to stop myself and not say cold-blooded, I almost said it about five minutes ago when I said direct ethermic. Yeah. Because most people don't know what ectothermic means, and they know what cold-blooded means. So we they do now. Ectothermic, right. everybody. So, so, so here's the difference. Um, you know, ectothermic just means that the heat comes from the outside, mostly from the sun, sometimes from like a hot rock or something like that, um, or a convection oven if you happen to be, you know, in a warm breeze, right? But... The idea is it's from the outside, whereas cold-blooded implies that they're cold. But the, the reason why that's not a good term is if you were to go out there right now in the desert, you were to pick up uh, a lizard running around. You know, what we do is we actually, if you want to know, you get a fishing pole, we tie a little string at the end, like a make a noose, mm-hmm. and we slip it around our neck and we lift them off the ground. And then when we do that, we quickly put a special thermometer in their bum, essentially. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. I, I think I zoned out for one sec. Can you, you better repeat that. So okay. you take a little so, noose. So we take a little noose. We, uh, we put it around their neck you know, from a distance. It's, the noose is attached to a fishing pole, right? Because you can't get close to these things. They're hot as hell, and they're running around super fast because they're all heated up yeah. from the sun. Right. And, and then you lift them up. You're to grab them, you know, around the body and then quickly put a thermometer in their bum and you find that all of a sudden they don't care so much that you're calling them cold-blooded they yeah, just wish you would stop that, probing that's there. right so you do the, the the alien abduction thing and and what you find is if you get a really quick reading thermometer that's made for this kind of job their temperature is like 36 to 38 degrees celsius and that's really close to what we are we're 37 degrees celsius so you know you, there's no way of saying they're cold-blooded and we're warm-blooded in fact they might be warmer than us at mm. any particular moment so that's why that term's outdated but I but see. you know if I, I were to take you and put you in a cold room and put them in a cold room you'd still be warm on the inside and they would be cold and that's why that idea of cold-blooded sort right, of rings true right. to some people well so for everyone living in arizona it's not cold-blooded and illegal immigrant it's <laughs> ectothermic and undocumented (laughs) (laughs) or not illegal aliens that's right uh, undocumented immigrants so that's now we've got our terminology everyone in arizona can be a little more pc um and you know what's interesting wise we were talking at um at dinner last night um was because i asked the question last night i i was like so how do they just how do they keep from dying off because you you put me in the cold without um and and i have the ability to manufacture heat uh, within me but if 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 all of a sudden it gets very cold outside and i don't have a coat and everything else i'm i'm worried about frostbite i'm worried about keeling over if all of a sudden i'm in the wisconsin winter and i uh, and i'm butt naked because i got drunk and forgot where i lived or something like that but um but so lizard so i was asking uh, how do they stay alive when there's like you know there's a cold spell all, you know, i live in la and i see these little chameleons and stuff or i think they're chameleons or whatever is around um these fun little guys crawling all around buildings and everything and uh, i want because there's 
these cold spells sometimes where there's these 30 degree drops in temperature for a week or something like that, just some rare fluke thing that isn't normally in this environment. And, um, and, and so I was asking, how do they stay alive? But it turns out that that really, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't endanger them. No. Right? It no, just so, so what's a stress for you and what's a stress for another animal is a completely different thing. So right. you take a lizard and you chill it down, what's going to happen is it's going to slow down. Already, like even at the same temperature, like say the lizard's warm like we are, mm-hmm. its metabolic rate, its energy requirements are like one-tenth of ours. For its size. So if we were to take Shane and shrink Shane down to the size of the right. lizard and hold them together, because you're endothermic, you know, you've got a much higher metabolic rate. So the lizard, all it's doing, it, it's slow to begin with, right, metabolically, and it's just going to slow down more when the temperature goes down. So we, we've done experiments in the lab where we want to know, you know, how much energy do lizards spend when they're in winter, like you're saying, when they go dormant because they just slow down because they become so cold. And, you know, it's like you can't even measure the weight loss in these things because they just shut down mm. metabolically. And unless they freeze, they're not going to die. Now, if they were to stay they cold. They just get real slow. Yeah, That's just so get funny. real slow. And, you know, to the point where you could even just. They look like they're paralyzed, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you warm them up again, they're fine. And so that's, that's just, just going a difference into like in a physiology. temporary hibernation ish sort of Exactly, thing. yeah. You could call it hibernation. Now, there's a special term for it, but it's, it's essentially what you would call hibernation. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the other funny thing when we were talking last night, um, which I, I really, I, yeah, so we'll finish up because I wanted to get into your midlife crisis and then what, what you're working on now and how we met. But um, the other thing that I found interesting um, when we were chatting was just about how the, the regulations of, because some of your students are working with flies, Right. Correct. And, and then other ones are working with uh, with lizards and and the um, I, I don't know what you call it. Regulations and um, academia. Is it is it so, by state or is it by uh, how does it work? Oh, the, the animal the, care regulations. The, yeah. Yeah. The animal yeah. care regulations. Yeah. Well, is so that like a federal thing. Or it's a is federal it, thing. Okay. That's right. So there's a federal act that protects animals that are used for research and the protection which makes sense like just broadly speaking yeah uh, you got to have some regulations in place but then you when you look at like what what the regulations are and the differences between species it's it it follows people's hearts right so so obviously cockroaches aren't protected (laughs) you know most people don't care about cockroaches flies aren't protected at all anything without a vertebra isn't protected um, there are very few exceptions to that, but the vast majority of species that don't have a backbone aren't protected, and it's just a bias. <laughs> you know, we have a backbone. <laughs> it's got fur and feathers, and we like it. We protect it. Fish are protected, too, so you might think... But flies, you can just... It doesn't matter. You no. can collect well, we can do whatever I mean, we want Because we had... Um, who, who uh, you, you know, Bob Krebs, I yeah. had on the program um, a while back as probably episode 12 or something i don't quite remember but um but he he goes out and gets a thousand of these things and and he he's doing some similar thermal regulation stuff and and he's burning the hell out of these things yeah and, and right. seeing the point at which their wings will stop yeah, work. like yeah, not yeah, even yeah, just killing yeah, them yeah, yeah like, so we call that we call that knockdown temperature right we see the temperature where they get knocked down right oh, so basically okay. we heat them up and if it's a fly, they're flying around in this little tube. And then as you heat them up slowly, they get more and more agitated, obviously, right? right? So imagine this. And then at some point, they just can't. 
function anymore, and they just drop. They just stop flying, right? That's, they get knocked down by the heat. You can do that all day long to flies. Nobody cares. But you can't do that to a lizard even because it has a vertebra. It has a backbone. So if to do that, I have to get special permission. It takes like a month or two to go through a process, and there's a whole panel of people that evaluate the ideas, and they question, do you really need to do this? Could you do something else? And what is the more humane way to do this or that? And then, So it's, there's a lot of protection. And there's a, not, not a whole lot of um, existentialism philosophy amongst these panels, clearly. No, <laughs> there's a hard and fast federal rules that are followed, right? The, the funny thing is, you know, even a lizard, which is a, a, a vertebrate, and it's protected, it's not protected until it hatches. So if I were to have a, a lizard egg, and I've got an embryo in there, it's developing, it's kind of like the whole uh, abortion issue, right? Right, <laughs> you know, right. When is, yeah. when is life, life life? begins right? at the hatching. Yeah. And... So it is clear, according to the federal laws, that life begins when they hatch here. Because you know, if I have a lizard, essentially, at, you know, 90% of its development in the egg, it essentially looks like a lizard. If you were to cut it open and take it out, it has scales, it has eyes, and all that other stuff. But I could do that, and nobody would be able to do anything about it. Like, there's no legislation against that. The minute it actually hatches on its own and comes out of the egg, now it's protected. Ah. Uh, yeah. That's <laughs> it's weird, right? That is. is yeah, yeah, it's funny. So I a lot mean, of people work with things like flies because you can do all kinds of experiments. I'm trying to think of what all, like, the lizard billboards would say, and, like, uh, they'd be outside pro- protesting at the lizard hatchery abortion yeah that's right that's stuff. right people throwing stuff at me as i come to work <laughs> yeah. um so i cut you off though um but but you were saying what was it, but what's so you can't just go and kill off a lizard just to see what happens i mean it, it takes a lot more to be able to yeah you have to justify the to, kind of science that you dissect do right or whatever yet you're allowed to Probe these things. Yeah. <laughs> you're allowed to stick a thermometer up their yeah, butt, right? You can, you can anally yeah. rape yeah. the things yeah. all you want, but but as far as there's a gradient of acceptable <laughs> behavior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So um, so then so you're doing a lot of this work, and then you have well, I mean, I'm not sure if you're comfortable calling it that, but just kind of half jokingly be- before we were. Co- you're calling it kind of a midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. No, that, I'm very comfortable calling it that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like people say this is silly when I talk about me having a midlife crisis like four or five years. But, but I mean, I literally had like a real mental breakdown where it was like I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life anymore. It was like I just hated I didn't hate, but I just didn't really like. I I was good at writing jokes, mm-hmm. and I like put together another hour, and I was getting ready, and I was like, I just don't, I don't care about any of this. Yeah, anymore. you don't feel the passion, right? I just don't feel it, and yeah. I don't want to be doing this um, forever. Just cranking out like this meaningless stuff that means nothing to me. And, and most people don't have a midlife crisis around thirty. However. The way that my just, life was headed. It just means you're going to die when you're 60. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The way my life was headed, 30 was like, that was optimistic, yeah. Yeah. calling that a, a midlife crisis with, with all of uh, the exceptionally heavy drinking and everything else that I was doing at the time. Um, so so we had our midlife crisis. Uh, you're about 10 years older than me. Yeah, we had our I'm midlife crisis 40, at roughly the, the same time. Yeah, so I, I mean, I look back and I said, look, I... If I had said, where would I be in 20 years when I was first getting into biology? 
the last thing I would have thought I'd be is is looking at how climate change impacts animals and not there's anything wrong with that. I mean, it's it's something that's important to do. Actually, can we talk about the climate change impact yeah, on sure. animals real quick? <laughs> I'm sorry, as you're saying, like sure. I was getting bored with, but uh, but uh, but if we can, just real yeah, sure. real quick, absolutely, because, because that was one of the questions that absolutely. I wanted to ask yeah. you about. Um, so uh, so we hear all about this climate change stuff, and it seems. I mean, it seems like really hard to predict. Like, we just know it's not going to be great. And, that, and, and that's, that's a really good... I think I think get what you're asking is, like, like how, what can we predict, right? Especially 100 because years like from now. The, you hear all the time people say, in 100 years, it's going to be like this. And then that... And how, how do you predict something so far and in so the, the future? so the ice caps, they're going to melt. So right. that means... So everyone gets confused, like, well, what if, if it's global warming, then why does why is it still cold and why are we still hitting record lows in winters and stuff like that? Right. And people don't realize that that the ch- it's the uh, the ice um, uh, uh, the um, icebergs are are they're changing the the flow and the ocean current and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's making for a more unpredictable weather and that and that could actually i mean when when the shit hits the fan some areas of the world might be freezing yeah yeah so it's right it's now. it's that it's probably a better thing to say global warming to say climate change right yeah, because yeah. a couple of things are going on one it's not warming everywhere there are some places where the pattern is is cooling so the climate's changing locally in different ways and some places are warming faster than other places so the average over the whole globe Mm-hmm. is that there's been a slight warming. But the averages are very misleading, especially when you want to do what I am interested in doing in my lab, is predicting how animals or plants might be impacted by these changes. Because an, an organism doesn't see the average, right? It sees what it sees on the ground in a particular place during its life, and, and the temperatures it sees is going to change throughout its life. I'll give you an example, Shane. This is an example you can relate to. So if I say, hold out your hand, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shake your hand, right? And on average, I'm going to shake your hand with a nice, firm grip, right? It's comfortable, yep. yeah? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, instead of, of doing that every time, I'm going to shake it 10 times. And most of the time, I'm going to shake it real light. And then one time, I'm going to crush it, right? Uh, yeah, but yeah. on average, I, sh- I just gave you a nice, firm grip if I were to average those shakes, right? right? So the, the point is the average doesn't tell you anything about what the animal really experiences. The animal experiences every single one of those temperatures that are average, including the extreme. Just like in that example, your hand would experience every single one of those shakes, including the one where I crushed you like a vice, right? And so what what we're interested in doing in the lab is, one, we work with a climatologist to try to figure out what those extremes would be like. So what do the extremes look like now? How do animals deal with those extremes now? And will those extremes become more extreme or more frequent in the future? And that's where the, you know, the, the voodoo magic prediction comes in, right? Where there's supercomputers crunching lots of scenarios, and no one can say with certainty what the climate will even be. But you could make lots of assumptions, different scenarios, and say, okay, here's a range of possible outcomes. Most of them involve warming, right? <laughs> the question right. is, how much warming will we see? And what's happening now with the extremes, like r- right now that you're studying? Right. Yeah, so so what's happening now, you could also say compared to the past, right? So right. so now we're seeing more extreme events, we call them, more extreme temperatures, either highs or lows, or extreme drought uh, or storms. 
than we have in the past, and what you would predict is, is more this, of those in the future. Th- this is globally speaking. You're seeing these extremes, well, or, or again, when you say Arizona globally, or, what does that mean? Is that an yeah, average yeah. Right, across right, right. the globe? Right? Yes, averaged across the globe, you see more. Right? But the question is where the the real the real thing to do is where are those going to be? So where are those extreme events going to be most common? And literally, Shane, this is why it's interdisciplinary. So there is a climatologist that we work with who runs these global climate models, right? And the output of those global climate models would be what the weather might be on a 30-some kilometer by 30-some kilometer block, right? Mm-hmm. Now that's a huge area, right? Nothing that we care about alive lives in that big of a spot. They live in a tiny little speck within that. So then I have to work with other people that can take that climate and use that to scale down to like a small microclimate, we might call it, which is like a spot where an animal might sit. And then, of course, you have to think about the animal. Like the animal could be low on the ground. It could be up on a tree. It could be pressed off the ground in a posture that looks like it's doing a push-up. You know, or it could be in a burrow. And all of those places will have different temperatures based on the, the macroclimate that we right. talked about. right? So all that is just figuring out what the temperature extremes would be like. And those kinds of models that we do suggest that, that there will be more extreme events. And by an extreme event, I might mean, remember how we talked about that fly getting knocked down? Right. Let's say 40 degrees or 41 degrees Celsius knocks down a fly. Right? That's something like uh, 105 Fahrenheit. Right? So it's hot. Right. If that knocks down a fly, we might say that's a lethal event. Right? Or, and then we say, how many lethal events are there going to be in this particular place you know, in this 20-year span in the future versus now? And that's the kind of information we use. We don't use these, ah, oh, the globe's warmed by 0.6 degrees Celsius in the last 100 years. Who cares? That doesn't tell us what's going to happen to an animal. That's actually, if anything, masks the kind of events that are going to affect animals because it's the average. Hmm. And so what are you finding? So what we're finding is that, uh, well, there's a couple of and then I'll say what we're finding, what the whole field is finding, right? Because a lot of people are doing this. And, and if you want to make inferences about what's going on across the globe, it's going to be the collective work right, of a right, bunch of, of different labs that are working in different places in different ways. Well, so, how about specific? Well, I, I mean, you can take it any direction you want, but well, definitely. I'll, I'll, what I'll do is I'll start okay. broad and then narrow in, okay, right? Okay, great. And so the broad context of what's going on now is, is people are, are finding something surprising. It, you would have imagined from, I think, looking at the news that, uh, maybe I'll ask you, what species do you think would be the most in trouble during climate change? Jeez, um, I would say... I, I, it could be, I'm, I'm so could be a influenced kind of species or where by, they are. I, well, I would, I would say that, uh, you know, from what I understand, like Florida is going to be screwed a little bit and, and some, of, some of the East Coast is going to have these rising levels, which is going to change a lot. And then I, I'm always uh, hearing apocalyptic predictions about how the bees are all going to vanish, but that's not so much to do with climate, is my understanding. Okay, so you're, um, so you're thinking of specific case studies you might have heard about. Yeah, it, right? yeah. Okay, so let's, now let's think globally, and we think, um, where is it warming the most? What we know from the past is it's warming the most at the, at the um, poles, yeah, the, right? Our, Extremes. Yeah. North Pole, South Pole, right? So high this is latitude. This the big problem that everyone's right? talking so, about. So, yeah, right. And isn't the, the ice melting is what right. everybody's worried about. And you see pictures of, you know, the famous picture of a polar bear standing on a tiny little piece of ice, right? 
You know, yeah, and you see the polar bear's going to drown. The, sort of. Here's the ice caps 50 years right. ago or whatever. And now you look at it yeah. now, and it's like there's green stuff everywhere. Like, yeah. oh wow. So, so there's no doubt nice. that the poles are warming rapidly. But the right. the interesting thing and the surprising thing is, animals that live at these high latitudes towards the poles actually are living at temperatures um, that are well below the temperatures that stress them. So well below these sort of knockdown or stressful temperatures. So they have this really big safety margin. That is, they have this wide range of temperatures they can increase. The polar bears don't mind if it warms up a little bit, basically. Well, there's a lot of issues, but as far as stress, thermal stress, that may not be a big problem. The the bigger problem may be in, in the tropical areas, right, towards the equator, where you've got a whole bunch of species there. In fact, the vast majority of biodiversity is there. And if you look at those species, they tend to be specialists. And they have very narrow ranges of temperatures that they can function at because for eons, right, they have lived in the tropics, and the tropics have been a very stable place to live. Well, ju- just like if in uh, it, it's like academia down there. There's a, there's a million different things going on, so if you, if you want to make yeah, it, you need to find your very specialized little evolutionary niche. That's exactly right. They are specialized in many ways, and one of the ways is they are thermal specialists. So even though the tropics are warming just a little bit compared to the poles, that little bit turns out to be potentially much more stressful to animals on the ground than that it would makes be. A lot which, of sense. Yeah, but it's it's not what anyone might have expected, right? Because um, it's counterintuitive because it doesn't match with the amount of warming. So, in some sense, that's one of the surprising things that's coming out. But then, of course, if we think about this. This depends on what I said that stress was, right? So I talked about the hand squeezing before, right? I mean, the other thing with the poles is there's not a lot of life up there. Anyway, That's so true. there's not a lot of other life depending on that life. So the impact of that particular in terms of, in terms of is, diversity, right? There's, yeah, there's not a lot of biodiversity. Whereas one one integral uh, one like keystone species or whatever in the tropics that gets wiped out, and now you have this cascade or this domino effect of all these other species that are being affected by whether that was their prey or their predators. Potentially, um, yeah, potentially. Um, so I don't know if your audience knows what a keystone species is. Oh, yeah. We should probably explain that. <laughs> um. <laughs> there you are, you academic, slipping into <laughs> yeah. jargon. Wait, aren't you the comedian? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. And here you are doing the jokes. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and so, I'm throwing out the jargon. So a keystone species is is one that has a really big impact on a community of species. Um, let's say a predator that happens to keep one species under control, and if, if that predator wasn't present, that other species would increase, become so abundant that it would outcompete everything else, right? And so right. you see that in a, in a number of experiments in, uh, in communities, that there are these species that hold things together, as you kind of argue, right? And we have talked somewhat on the podcast about uh, the you know, introduction of foreign species. That, invasive uh, species. That in, invasive species, which actually that was uh, another topic um, Bob Craves and I talked about was the the zebra mussels moving right, in right right huge and invasive, invasive species. species so so almost like the opposite happening in in this case in, in the tropics if things war, warm up and now instead of introducing one that that uh takes over and screws up every now you're taking out one of these keystone species yeah and that's a potential 
in, in, in any community, and certainly in the tropics, if that were to happen, more species could be impacted. But the, the key surprising thing there is tropical species may be very sensitive, right? And so it's just a little bit of warming. Sounds like not that big a deal, but it's all relative to what an animal can take. So going back to the hand analogy where I squeeze your hand and, you know, I do it and I say, oh, it's, I'm going to give you a firm grip. That's a normal adult hand that you've got there, Shane. But what if you were a small child? The same amount of pressure that I exert on your hand if you're a small child may actually be very painful, right? Oh, that's so interesting. It's, it's, it's not just the, the amount of stress, the average amount of stress. It's the extremes. And it's not just the extremes. It's the extremes relative to what you can tolerate. And the same species can tolerate very different things throughout its life. And that's where our work comes in, is we're trying to take a life cycle approach. And so going back to the lizards we talked about, most of the work that's been done has been with adult lizards. And adult lizards are very good at running around and choosing places that will allow them to cool down if they need to. So what they'll do is if they start to overheat is they'll just go underground. Or you know, they'll go up a tree where they can get a, catch a breeze. They'll use behavior to, to figure out how to cool off. What happens, though, to those little embryos we talked about before? You know, the ones I don't need permission with to do research on? Yeah. <laughs> those little embryos are trapped in an egg, and they don't really have very anywhere to go. Ah. And so they're in the soil, and they're, they're usually buried very shallowly in the soil. So they're you know, at the part of the soil that's warming up during the afternoon quite high. And they're stuck there for like two months. They have nowhere to go. They're trapped in that little egg trying to develop and those extreme events that we talked about before, that's what we're modeling. How, how many times are those embryos going to hit a temperature that could kill them if they just hit it for like a few minutes once a day? And we could model that and show that the number of extreme events that you'd expect at places where lizards are laying their eggs is going to increase in the future. And it, what it's going to potentially do is cause like whole generations, right, to, to die, have these lethal events. You know, if you have all your... To say a phrase, let put all your eggs in one basket, right? You've got all your offspring in a little nest, and if that nest hits a lethal temperature, they all die. And so that's a big hit on the population. So we've been modeling how that affects whether a species can persist in a place and whether or not there's going to be less of a chance it's going to be there in the future because of these lethal events. Not just in adults, but at the embryo stage. So how... Uh, I'll tell you where I'm going with this in sure. a second. but. How how do lizards know where to uh, lay their eggs? Is it is it um, is that an adapted thing um, where where they're just picking some temperature, or are they are they learning through uh, life history? <laughs> That's a great freaking question. So I spent like weeks of my life living in the woods to answer this question. About ten years ago, I and I could say I had no idea, and I wanted to design these experiments in the lab where I changed temperatures in a natural way, but we had no idea where the eggs were, right? So I did what I, the only thing I could think to do is I took a little tiny radio transmitter, which would then give out a signal, and I would be able to follow where that radio transmitter was. And I glued it on the back of a pregnant female. And I did this to a bunch of pregnant females, and I followed them around 24-7 because I had no idea when they were going to lay their eggs. Right. So I had to watch them all the time. And I did this for weeks at a time. So I basically... This was actually when the Blair Witch Project was just released in the theater, and I had seen it that summer, and then I spent that summer sleeping in the woods <laughs> in a van for, for, like, weeks at a time. It was awful, right? <laughs> Every little noise I heard at night freaked me out. That's hilarious. So I followed these lizards around 24-7. It turns out that what they do is um, they'll spend a lot of their time thermoregulating, as we talked yeah. about, in this little patch. They'll call, we'll call that patch their territory, right? And then all of a sudden these females... We'll just get up, and within a day or two, 
haul off in this long distance across the forest to the same place. In fact, all these females were coming from all these different directions to the same place. We call it like a nesting site. And what they do is spend a day or two there, and they look around, and then at night they'll dig a hole, and they'll back into that hole, and then they'll lay their eggs, and by morning they'll fill it up and take off. And so just from that observation, which I saw multiple years in a row, you say to yourself, okay, what are the odds that all those females are kind of going to that place really quickly like that unless they already know where to go, right? Right. So I, I think what's going on is that these females were born there, and they're kind of homing their way back, right, ah, to where the they were. salmon do that. Yeah, lots of animals do yeah. that, right? And there's other experiments that show if you take a, a lizard and you move it, like, you know, 100 meters, like a football field away, it will go back to where it was within a few days. So there's obviously a distance. If you take it a state away, it's not going to go back. It's not going to ah. find its way from Ohio to, to New Jersey. But if you were to just move it out of its home range, it can find its way back. So it's, it's completely plausible to think that these things home, which means if they're homing to where they should lay, they might be just more or less following a simple rule. Which wouldn't be good, right? That if, would be awful. Yeah, yeah because, be, they're, because they're not they're not going to be flexible that's enough right. to. They're, they're, if if the climate's changing in what what what's the generation of a, a uh, of generation of lizards? A few years. Few yeah. years, but but so still, if you're going back to the same, uh, the reason what made me think of it, I was thinking of um, of there's these sea turtles. I think this is this this wonderful. Um, thing that kind of says a, a lot about um, philosophically it, it makes me think a lot about how we behave the way we do and, and think about how necessary what we do is anyway the, the thing is is these there's these sea turtles that each time that they go to breed they go from the west coast to Africa and they swim across the ocean to the east coast of South America and people for the longest time they didn't understand. They're like, why would you swim that far to um, uh, to lay your eggs? But and what what they eventually determined was that these things just go way way back to like the dinosaur age. And what happened was uh, those those used to be those lands used to be attached. <laughs> That's great. And at one point. There was just like a little river, and there just happened to be some little advantage to swimming across the river. Maybe there's less predators that would get into the eggs or whatever if you swam across mm-hmm. to the other side of the river and laid your eggs there. Well, each generation, this is maybe another yard or something yeah, like yeah. that. And then millions of years were, later, they're doing the same thing. Millions of years later, just because this is in their head, evolution has shaped this inclination to swim this direction. And now just completely unnecessary, they're using all of this energy and all these calories, I'm sure dying along the way and everything else, where they could probably just lay them right where they are and be fine. But in your lizard's case, if they're following the same simple rule and just um, quote-unquote mindlessly kind of just going back to the place of their birth, well, that may have changed um, dramatically in a, in a few years. That's right. And what we've shown through modeling is that if they were the lay, to lay their eggs a little bit deeper or in a place that's a bit shadier, they can sort of compensate for these changes, but we don't know whether they have that behavioral capacity. In fact, this summer we're doing an experiment where we're creating these big areas for them to choose where the nest from, like out in these field enclosures, and they'll be able to decide where to lay their eggs, and we'll manipulate the situation so that they might want to lay them in shadier places or less shady places and actually see whether they can do this. But we don't really know. So the nice thing about 
the kind of science that we're doing now for climate change is it causes us to ask questions about basic biology we would have never asked. So for years, I didn't know where lizards laid their eggs or cared whether or not it, they were plastic in that behavior, whether they were flexible, right? because it wasn't important to me. But now that you know, we have this model that's predicting that this could be important for the, whether they survive during climate change, we're asking new questions that we never asked before. Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. And now I'm going to let you off the hook, and we don't have to talk about climate okay. change Great. anymore. They, uh, okay. I think that was uh, really interesting. I think our, our listeners will have enjoyed that. But now... Let's talk about um, uh, so so you you were like I don't know uh, uh, twenty years ago I probably wouldn't have uh, uh, yeah so, gone into this had I known where I was going to end so up. So twenty now. years ago I was a young kid who had a bunch of snakes for pets and yeah. I liked animals and I really wanted to learn more about evolution and I needed to find a job and I didn't know what I wanted to be right I had gone through pre-law and I tried to get into the music school and the business school wouldn't take me like I really didn't know what I wanted to be but when I found out that there was a job studying snakes, and I, I loved snakes. I thought, oh, I'll go with that. And that ended up with the lizard thing, and that ended up to the thermoregulation and climate change. But you see you're going further and further down the rabbit hole that you never thought you would have been going down. Right. And so I kind of got to a point where, look, I'm a full professor. I'm tenured. I've got a really big active lab. People come from different places to work with me because of my reputation in, in uh, thermal biology. But I don't have to do that necessarily all the time. I can step back and say, okay, what would I do if I could start over and I had access to the same resources I have now? And to me, that goes back to what originally fascinated me about biology was understanding you know, how I work, you know, how I came to be, what the meaning of life is, the same stuff that's driving you to do this podcast. Yeah, and, and you know, even as I was thinking, you were talking about you learned a little, maybe a little bit of evolution in high school or whatever. Or none. Uh, or, or none. <laughs> but even if you do, I mean, I was taught a little bit, um, you know, being 10 years younger, there was, it was making its way into public school a little more. But even then, learning about the basics of evolution and survival of the fittest, I, I think until you really dig into it a little more, you don't start to see how it shapes, really shapes how we live our lives, how we perceive this this whole idea of life, this interpretation of life, whatever it is, mm-hmm. how accurate mm-hmm. it is. How we and form relationships, how, how are, you get along with your spouse, your children. I mean, all of it has evolutionary implications yeah. yeah you say okay so things changed a little bit and i'm here now who cares but no this is this this still has a huge impact on your everyday life that's right and what makes it makes humans even more interesting too is that we have culture now so we have this sort of evolutionary history that explains a lot of what we do now we have this sort of culture that's constantly changing around us and tweaking our behavior as well and so we're like a really complicated species to study because we have a lot of flexibility but we also have a history. And all I'm really interested in doing now, uh, in addition to the work we do at Climate Change, is taking the kinds of evolutionary principles that I've learned from my work with non-humans and applying them to humans. Just really selfishly just to understand more about myself. And if it turns out I can make a contribution to a field at the same time, then great. Yeah, I mean, if I'm being totally honest, at at the time that I started reading some of this stuff, I... I for a while, I was like, you know, I bet I could use some of these ideas to get laid more. <laughs> <laughs> like, I honestly, I mean, that was that wasn't 
I mean, I I always had natural curiosities and everything else, but there there were some very selfish kind of um, maybe superficial reasons for me to get interested in this stuff in the first place. But who cares? Because now, I, you know, I'm applying this stuff to understanding all of human nature, and I'm trying to help others understand and everything else. Um, so, so you started. So when when did you? Like me, because we met with Robbie Wilson is how we met. So did you start working with him on stuff around the same time? So uh, Robbie Wilson, if you listen to that podcast, uh, he works at the University of Queensland. He's always been this kind of guy that gets me to think outside the box and do like interesting side projects. We started working about, uh, well, I met him in 2002, back when he was also doing thermal biology. And so we were doing that stuff that I'm known for together for a while. And he started to branch out really early and do stuff with deception. And I know you talked to him about his work with crayfish, right? Yeah, yeah, so, a little bit. So this is, this is how we met. Uh, this that's is how, right. how all of met. this came together. Um, my, my friend Marty Hazelton was like, hey, there's this great guy, Robbie Wilson, coming through. And they she met did, because she of his deception work. She didn't know you were coming no? at the time. And, and um, otherwise, I probably would have had you on then. Um, but uh, and they met because yeah because and, of his and so we wanted to so. interview Marty because Robbie and I both teach a class um, to students introductory students about he teaches class about the biology of human behavior and I call my class why people steal cheat and lie I focus on the really interesting human behaviors right and um, we both are going around filming people experts right and Marty was one of these experts because you know the work she does with uh, human sexual behavior. Marty was the very first episode, and we'll definitely be having her on um, again soon and, and um, more in the future. She'll probably be a regular guest on here for the listeners. So we met there in L.A., and then, and then you came out here. Um, so where were we going with this? Do you want to know so about I, I was, some of these projects? Yeah, or yeah. So I, w- I just wanted to introduce this is how we met, and then um, this is – I should have just said this early on. I didn't know the best way to go about it. And now me just talking right now is – this is totally unnecessary for me to talk about what, <laughs> what my brain was going through. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so I, I just – I thought it was interesting to hear about – your midlife crisis. I wanted listeners to know how we met. And this is, by the way, everybody, um, Michael is responsible for me getting all of the guests that I've gotten this week, which is now like two months of episodes um, at uh, the Arizona State University. Mike, sorry, I have Michael That's written fine. down because I, I wasn't sure what you went by. Um, uh, and and so and and so that's that's how we got here. You know and. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, if you want to connect back to how we met there at, at UCLA and, and Rob, through Robbie, um, I could talk about some of the midlife crisis projects that I've yeah, done because of my, that's what I figured, my relationship with Robbie. Um, and one of these, uh, there's a couple of them. One, we just uh, were co-authors on a paper that came out with a psychologist named Bill Von Hippel, as well as Bob Trivers. I I'm sure you've heard of Bob Trivers. I know Trivers, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so you, I'm hoping to get him on as a guest sometime. Yeah, it'd be a very interesting uh, guest. Uh, so Hippel Bill. sounds familiar as, as well. Yeah, Bill would be an amazing guest as well. Um, and he frequently comes to the States. So I was out there working with Robbie, uh, again, on one of these sort of midlife crisis projects. And we were, we were, he's, Robbie's a huge you soccer fan. You just wanted fan. a trip to Australia. That's what you it's all about. Honest. That's what it's all about, right? I know. Well, it's, it's all about having fun, right? <laughs> yeah, Enjoy yeah. yourself. So I'm out there in Australia and, and, 
he's really a soccer fan, and he loves, you know, the World Cup year was that year. He wanted to be, a, like, a professional soccer he, player he did. at one point. And so, so he's really interested in sports behavior, right, how people behave in sports, whether they're um, – how skill is developed – how people use dishonesty in sports. I mean, soccer's great for that, right? People falling right in front of your face and <laughs> yeah, pretending to get tripped up, right? It's so annoying. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't... If, if it weren't for that, maybe I could watch soccer. But that's like a deal breaker yeah, for it's, me. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Can you imagine... I, I had to think, like, can you imagine if that was happening in baseball, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just like the ball pitch comes and you just fall on your butt. <laughs> but, but anyway, so we're out there and we just started saying, okay, well, we could probably take these kinds of models that we would use for behavior... Let's say I wanted to model how a lizard thermoregulates. What I would do is I would say, what's the benefit of thermoregulating? Well, I keep a good body temperature. Mm-hmm. I get to function well. You know, I, maybe I get to move around and not freeze up, as we talked about before. Um, I don't overheat. And I say, but what's the cost? Well, uh, if I'm a lizard and I'm thermoregulating, i got to find sunlight, and i got to hang out in the sunlight to warm up. And then if I warm up too much, i got to then run the shade. And now you can see I'm going back and forth between sun and shade, and that's pretty conspicuous, right? And your food might not necessarily be yeah. in the most ideal temperature-wise. So it's hard to eat you. and do that, and you're also saying to predators, hey, look at me, I'm running back and forth all day, right? So you're very conspicuous. So there's, there's a, a, a bunch of potential costs. So what we do, if I want to study a non-human animal like a lizard, is I model costs and benefits. So we start saying, hey, can we do something similar for soccer? Like, is it possible we can do a science of soccer project where Robbie gets his soccer kick in and I get to do my midlife crisis thing? Um, and so we started talking about how to make a perfect penalty kick. And we started looking at the issue of when you see somebody sort of queue up to take a penalty kick, they have to decide where they're going to kick it as they run down. But also the goalie is assessing where that ball's going to be. An interesting thing is the goalie's often leaving like, 400 milliseconds before the kick even happens. So the goal is using body language from the kicker to figure out which way to dive and to dive low, to dive high, etc. So there's a huge opportunity to take the kinds of cost and benefit models that you would apply to a decision like, should I thermoregulate? Or, you know, um, I'm an animal, should I deceive my opponent in a fight or something like that? And now say, okay, in this soccer situation, this is a contest, right, between two animals. And you might say, well, you know, it's a really highly contrived contest, but is it? I mean, the, think of the fitness benefits of winning the World Cup. You right. kick a goal. You're the star of the World Cup. You're getting late for a long time. You're passing yeah, a lot of genes there, on through the generations, and, and, you, and you got the money to make sure that, that your children and the, the genes of yours that are in your children are probably going to do quite well. And, and, and whether or not this plays out this way in modern society, the bottom line is we've evolved to sort of compete with each other, right, through contests, ritualized contests. And this is just one kind of ritualized contest. So we started to model what are the, what are the things that are at stake here. And so you see the kicker has something to worry about. So the kicker could try to deceive the goalie, make it look like he's going to kick left instead of right. But if you do that, if you ever watch, then you've got to run a certain way, like you're going to go left, and then switch at the last minute. There's a cost to that, right? Because now your accuracy in kicking to the right is probably a bit lower than if you were just going that way all along, right? Oh, right. So that's sort of a deceptive strategy. But then on the other hand, you could say, ah, screw it. I'm just going to go straight ahead, you know, and balls to the wall and kick straight for the goal as fast as possible to the right, right? In that case, you're probably going to be a little bit more accurate because you're not trying to fake out the, the goalie. 
And you might even be able to be faster because, you know, you're running in one particular direction without breaking flow. So there's sort of a biomechanics. But he's going to know where to go. to. But he's going to potentially know where to go. And so now you're saying, look, I'm just going to beat him with my speed, right? right. I'm going to be honest, but I'm going to beat him with my ability to kick fast and accurately, right? Versus I'm going to be deceptive and I'm going to try to fool him. And then mm. it doesn't matter if I kick it. You've seen some of those kicks, right, where the goalie goes the wrong oh, way. Yeah, you can kind of just dribble it in the other way. Right, so so we started to model this and started to play with this, and we also started to play with this trade-off between speed and accuracy. So if you kick it really fast, as it turns out, even if you're a professional, you're a little bit less accurate than if mm-hmm. you kick it really slowly. So if you're going to kick it really fast, you may not want to aim for the corner because you may actually get it outside the goal. Mm. Right, so you might have to then consider a whole bunch of things. Am I going to deceive? How fast am I going to kick it? And where am I going to aim? And all those things go into a model, and then taking data from real soccer players, we can sort of put bounds on how that model works and make a prediction about what you should see in an actual soccer game and whether or not goalies and soccer players sort of behave optimally. Ah, that's interesting. And you know what's interesting about the the cheating and the decepting stuff is, is you think, oh, well, why is that important? Because, uh, it, you know, you think... If, if if you're just looking at sports without being informed about um, evolutionary theory and w- why males especially are driven to compete and advertise their fitness for uh, these much more choosy females, and uh, and it, it's interesting to um, think about how because you'd think oh these sports are just for fun or whatever but then why would you have all of these rules you know why (laughs) does that matter so much why does it matter who wins yeah why does it matter who wins and um and i from what i remember just some stuff i read years ago there it seems that um even as juveniles males tend to care a lot more about the rules Mm. Um, uh, whereas females will just like, hey, we're all friends. We're just having a good time, you know. And, like I would go and play tennis with my girlfriend, um, and and she would, um, and my ex, she would always, she would just want to hit the ball around, and I'm like, but no, it's got to go in the lines, and then yeah. there's a point. Yeah. And it's like, like I don't care if you win, but I care very much <laughs> about whether or not we're playing. Otherwise, right, what's right. the point if we're just hitting a ball yeah. around like it doesn't? Well, if there's no rules and you don't keep score, you can't win, right? And if you can't win, <laughs> yeah. you can't brag about winning. Right, you exactly. You can't build status, right? So it's interesting, all of sports in, in general and, and the structure of sports also evolved along those same lines of of um, uh, of showing an ability to giving people a chance to show an honest indicator of of their fitness. Uh, that's kind of what the rules are there for. Otherwise, you could that's have right. these cheaters. That's right. There's no mapping between your ability, or your winning in the sports, and your and your traits, right? Uh, your you quality. Can, uh, if you're a guy, you could just go, "Hey, ladies, I'm super strong. Right. I can pick up a bunch of stuff." Well. Okay, now go pick up. You have to yeah, show I'm, it. I'm really good at sports. Okay, well, did you win or didn't you <laughs> win? And was it actually hard to win because there were rules, right? Right. So there's all of these things in place to make sports honest, yet there's still, I mean, I guess this isn't just sports. This is in a lot of stuff with life on Wall Street or, you know, whatever you else. You cheat just a little yeah, bit, right? There's all the, there's this little gray area of cheating that you can find. And, that's right. And that's, uh, that's super interesting. But, but what's really interesting here is that the, the, the goalies and the kickers, 
that are dealing with this deception, this is a deception that's within the rules, right? You're allowed to pretend you're going to kick it to the left and then kick to the right. Mm-hmm. So to, to some extent, there's this deception like falling, right, the diving, where, you know, if you really get caught, you know, you're going to get a card for right. doing something wrong. But in this case, it's a deception that's allowed. So there's different kinds of deceptions, And right? it's more this deception is kind of, uh, I, I guess, the psychology or philosophy of it or whatever is that that particular deception is part of the fitness that's part of the that's skill right. look how that's good i am just at like yeah. hey i'm gonna steal something that's quick right. from you that's or right. something like that there there was a there was an art to it there was a a, a cleverness to it and tell so you are uh, advertising they they show in the replay Oh look! Look at this! How he duped this person here, and and that's actually something that you're proud of. You're actually showing off this that's right. ability to deceive in in that regard. That's exactly right. Yeah. So you you actually um, interviewed Dan Ariely, I think, at some yeah. point, right? And so Ariely, we talked a lot about lying. Yeah, Ariely has this idea he calls the fudge factor where people will lie just or cheat just a little bit, yeah, yeah. right? So if you give them a chance yeah, to steal or cheat, they'll do it just a little bit. And his argument is uh, they do it just a little bit because what they're trading off is, yes, there's a benefit from cheating, but there's also a cost in that you lose a little bit of self-respect for your... You know, just, it's harder to pretend you're a good person, right? And convince right. yourself you're a good person. I've kind of got a twist on this, and I'm not sure how he would think about it or agree, but that I think what really is going on there is that um, if you cheat just a little bit, there's a good chance you won't get caught, right? Whereas if you cheat a lot, there's on average a better chance that you're going to get caught and that we've kind of learned to tune our cheating. It's not that we really care about being good people. It's just we don't want to get caught. One way to not get caught is to not And take, we don't want people cheating off of us. Well, that's, that's, that's true. But if we can cheat a that's, little That's exactly right. And the way I think about it is this. Look, if I could cheat and get away with it 100% of the time, was guaranteed, I'm sure I'd cheat like a madman, oh, yeah. right? But I, I have this idea that that's not going to happen, right? And if I cheat a lot, there's more of a chance I'm going to get caught. Uh, and one way to not get caught is to actually look like you're honest. And so to, in order to deceive yourself that you're an honest person... You, ah, you, know, you this need is to, like Robert Trevor yeah, stuff. Yeah, going back to the Trevor stuff, right? Is that you've got to be able to believe I, your own I shit. I am you know? an honest, moral person. And exactly. That, so that when when you do go and uh, you get into that gray area or whatever, you can justify it to yourself in one way or another. Yeah. So you're still a morally good yeah. person. But, but the, the end goal isn't just to feel like a good person. It's to basically get away with cheating. And yeah. if you could get away with even more cheating, <laughs> then that, then you would probably do it. Yeah, it's easier to convince people you're an honest person if you believe that about yourself. Right. So another crazy uh, midlife crisis project that we're doing here uh, is along those lines. So I started reading the area I was working. I thought, well, I wonder if I could get people in a more natural situation outside of the lab to take a chance and steal more, right, to actually pay attention to the benefit of stealing. So, for example, uh, we have this experiment. Um, Wait, you're like... It, hey, I want you guys to go out and try to steal something just as an well, experiment. Well, I'll, I'll give you a setup. Okay. So, so what we do is create a scenario where I think it's it's less artificial than the kind of work that they do in the lab, where they'll give people a math test and and people will take the test, and there's a chance that they can cheat by saying I got so many more right. At the end of the day, though, they know they're in an experiment, right? They're in a lab setting. So what we do is we go out into on campus here, for example, at ASU, and I have students walking along on the sidewalk. 
and one reaches into his pocket to pull out a cell phone to get a call, and what drops out with it is a gift card, right? So this gift card could be, say, a Visa gift card. Mm. It might be for $25, or it might be for $50, or it might be for $100, right? And then what the person behind this, this dropper or the actor right. doesn't know is that there's somebody watching from the bushes with, you know, like, hidden camera to see what the person behind is going to do. Is that person going to pick up the gift card and return it? Is the person going to pick up the gift card and keep it? And the idea is that if you're in a more natural setting where you don't think you're being watched, uh, you know, you're not part of an experiment where right. it's apparent you're in a controlled situation, would you then pay attention to the benefit? Would you be more likely to take a $50 gift card mm-hmm. than a $25 and $100 than a 50 And you could also do other things. So one of the other things we do is we can say, like, let's do a Visa gift card and an Olive Garden gift card. Now, I like Olive Garden, right? But I'd rather have a Visa gift card any day than an Olive Garden gift card of the same value, right? Right. Why is that, Shane? Um, Because, uh, wait, what was the question again? (laughs) So why why would I rather have a Visa gift card for 50 bucks than an Amazon gift? Sorry, than a... uh, Olive Garden gift card, oh, 50 because, bucks. Uh, yeah, just because the Visa you can spend on anything. I can get Olive Garden. I can get anything else, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, so the, uh, the utility or the usefulness of that Visa gift card is more. So we could also do the same experiment where we then drop different kinds of gift cards for the same value and ask whether or not people will steal more or less. And then you know, another interesting spin on this that, you, that, that we have students doing is... Um, so, so people might be more inclined to be honest... If it's an Olive Garden gift yeah, card, and they don't like, care oh, about I'm not, Olive Yeah, Garden. exactly, right? Look, yeah, Olive Garden's good, but I'm not going <laughs> to steal and get caught for Olive Garden, right? Yeah. But hey, you know, I could use $50 for books that I have to spend, and it's all of a sudden that $50 gift card's looking a lot more attractive, right? Right. But the other thing you could do is we know that genders have differences in what they find useful. So have you ever been to Cabela's? Um, yes, I have. It's a, it's a sporting hunting store, right? Yeah. You, know, you have fishing stuff and yeah. hunting stuff. And um, if I tell most of my female students, have you ever heard of Cabela's? They're like, uh, no, not really. Likewise, if I go to most of my male students, I say, have you ever heard of Sephora? Have you heard of Sephora? Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's it? like a makeup thing, That's right? right. It's a makeup place. Yeah, the, the, the typical, the typical college like student it. doesn't really know what Sephora is if, he, if he's a male and and likewise, if it's a female, doesn't really care much about Cabela's. Right. And so we could drop these gift cards. And on average, you know, even though that may not be true for all women or men, on average, we'd expect men to be more interested in a sort of male-biased gift card mm. versus women being more interested in a women-biased gift card. Jeez, that's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about all of the different factors because the age, I think, is a big thing. Absolutely. If you look at life history, it's like when I was a teenager, it was, I mean... I I shoplifted a few times in my life. I um I once found like forty dollars in an ATM machine and I took it out. I didn't like return it or anything. I'm not sure now what I would do if I just found forty dollars in an ATM machine. That m- money's probably mine. That's right. I, I was talking um, but but now it's like I I feel like if I saw someone drop a gift card. That I would stop. The, you know, the other thing is, is you don't know exactly what it is. So you don't know if it's going to be useful to you or not. Like, it could just be someone's ID or something like that. That might be a problem That's with right. the study. So, it's like, it, if it could be anything, uh, then the benefit of maybe helping somebody out, and uh, there might be some reciprocation, or you at least get to pat yourself on the back or whatever. Whereas seeing someone just drop straight-up cash... 
or something like that. So, and I think that I would probably return someone's cash if I saw them drop it. I'm pretty confident that well, I would do that. You're a 34-year-old guy, But Shane. I'm a 34-year-old yeah. guy. When I was a teenager, I definitely don't think that I would, uh, I would do that. So it's interesting to think what is that about the life history? What has happened that is has made me embolden my sense of morals or whatever you would call Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So as a 34-year-old guy, a couple of things are different about you and an 18-year-old kid in college. Right. Your prefrontal cortex is more fully developed, and so you have a... A More better, impulse control. Yeah, you have a better ability better. to play out like what's going to happen here if I do this. And okay, that would be bad. So maybe I will just not do this. Which for the listeners, I think we probably talked about this before, but the prefrontal cortex doesn't fully mature until you're about 25. That's which correct. is a big part of why um, 18-year-olds make such shitty decisions. Um, decisions. But, but well, that may be adaptive, actually. Too, as, actually. It tur- as it turns out, you know, there's there's no... There's no reason to think there may not be a reason why you would want to make riskier decisions when you're younger. Because in order to... You have more of a safety net because your parents are still around if you're making risky decisions. Uh, in, in and the, mating opportunities and sticking out in crowds, popularity is a big thing. I think a lot of it comes thing. down to mating opportunities. And I think Especially what, what, for males. Yeah. I mean, are obviously young males, all sorts of risk-taking. Uh, yeah. Know, uh, we would look, and look at the criminal justice system and look who is... Uh, is going to court the most. So in your teenage years, this is where we call this, we have this term called reproductive value, right? And this is basically the, the value that you have um, in terms of your ability to survive and reproduce. By the time you're a teenager, let's say you're a 15-year-old boy, you've survived to 15. You've gone through a huge number of stages where there's very high mortality mm. in traditional society. So as a teenager, you're very likely to live long enough to reproduce because you're already ready to reproduce, right? So you've lived. Right. Now you're also very fertile at that age. And so you have an incredibly high reproductive value, whether you're a man or a woman. And so at that particular stage, you can imagine that your decisions about mate choices and risk-taking if you're a man and you're trying to get status are going to be very different than one if you're a 30-some-year-old parent, right? And at the age of 30-some years old in, in a typical society, you would be a parent. Right at that stage, right. um, and so you're you're definitely can think that there might be some adaptive change in the way your brain works. So that's one thing. Well, I'm thinking now uh, just um, the way in which we advertise ourselves as we get older as well. Like I, I'm thinking, so uh, I had a friend that recently he's about my same age. He found a hundred dollars out hiking or something like that, and and he was like, "Yeah, I had this moral dilemma. I ended up like going and." And like seeing if anyone reported losing money or something like that. Like, are you crazy? Yeah, he was he got, extreme. Like legs, that was right? just going to like blow away in the wind or something like that. It wasn't. He didn't see it fall out of someone's pocket. Or, like that hundred dollars just isn't theirs anymore. It, they were yours, never yeah. going to get yeah. it back. Like, and, and then and then he eventually like no one called and he gave it to charity or whatever. Like that's great. You find a hundred dollars, you want to give it to charity. Uh, that's great. But you don't like go and and, and try to find like. What? What? No one's going to call up and be like, did anyone find $100 around there? But then I was thinking about it, and I was like, well, one of the things that he was, one way in which he is benefiting is he's going around, because he's like, yeah, I ran it by my friend Jess, too, to see what she thought, and she said kind of what you were saying. But it's like, well, now he's telling he's a bunch going, of people exactly. he's bragging that about he's this, the right? kind of person that would go and, you know, give $100, yeah. which that's great. I say go ahead yeah. and brag all you want if you, that's something i say all the time on this podcast 
give to charity, go and brag about it. Way better than bragging about your Hummer or something stupid like that. Sure. But anyway, but but that's that's something that you may not recognize when you're 18. You may not have learned that that's something that you can advertise and will be attractive to mates. Whereas you're older, and all of a sudden you get to brag to everyone that you're this good Samaritan that turned in $100 or whatever. That might not be something that even occurs to you when you're a teenager. That's right. So there's yeah. a billion variables. There are. And so the other variable is, is, is sex. So men are 10 to 20 times more likely to do something stupid or illegal um, compared to women. And there's a reason to think that's linked to testosterone and how that affects your decision making. So there's, like you said, there's lots of factors. So in these experiments that we have students do, we're only going to have male actors mm. dropping gift cards for male uh, subjects. Because if we want to g- manipulate someone's ability to steal, we're probably going to want people that are more likely to steal, or else right. we're not going to find anything happening, right? So, so this is an a- example of how you, you can take – these are all evolutionary ideas we're talking about, right? Like the age and the stage you're at and whether or not it's good for you in terms of building status or getting a mate. You can take all these ideas that – honestly, you could, we, there's a lot of history of studying this in non-human animals. Like you know, study, people study deer and say, well, how do they make decisions when they – when they uh, are rutting and how do they then uh, defend a, a harem, you know, and, and how do they then make decisions about parental care? You're just taking the same models now and applying them to humans, right? Right. And just strip, when you strip away all the baggage we have, we're just animals, right, at, at the face of it. All right. Uh, well, that's, uh, that is fantastic. I think we could probably talk all day about, uh, <laughs> about this. These are just a lot of interesting philosophical ideas and everything as well. Um, but we should wrap up. This is, um, this is a little longer than usual. And you, I would uh, have to go and uh, fulfill some family obligations. That's right. Um, very soon. My daughter's prom so, tonight. Um, Hopefully next time, maybe next time I'm back, uh, let's get together again and let's do another one of these. Um, what is the charity of the week? Uh, so I thought about this, and I'm going to have to go with Goodwill for two reasons. One, Goodwill takes all the stuff that I need to get rid of, right? And sometimes it's good <laughs> stuff, but I just can't fit it anymore. I bought yeah. it, and I don't need it. And then Goodwill just is where I get all my T-shirts, you know? If I want like to get a good T-shirt and not pay a fortune for it, I go to the Goodwill. So it's like a give and take. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's an awesome one. I was just recently, I was in the middle of moving. I'm going to be moving again very soon. And I had like all these old clothes and everything. And the really easy thing to do is just like, yeah, I'll just dump it in the garbage. Right. But instead, I was like, ah, I could pack up a bag, take it to Goodwill, give myself a pat on the back. I did something good, and I'm no longer that shitty 17-year-old. <laughs> I get to feel good about myself. Um, so, so yeah, keep that in mind, everybody, when, when that house is getting clu- cluttered and everything else. Thank you so much, Mike uh, Angeletta, for joining me. Thanks for being my friend. Thanks for coming out to uh, a show last night. That was great. You're uh, hilarious. Oh, thanks. And uh, and thanks for lining up a billion interviews um, for me. This has been this has been podcast wise, as far as this podcast goes, this is the best week that I've had um, since I started doing this. So uh, it was tremendous help. Thank you so much. My pleasure. We got a lot more people here at ASU next time you come through. That's terrific. Thanks. Next week on the program, get a load of this, guys. I talk with the man who may very well eradicate AIDS. Not kidding you. Bert Jacobs with Arizona State University. 
might actually eradicate AIDS. He's getting rid of AIDS for real, guys. How amazing of a world would we live in if these were the kind of things that we were talking about and listening to for entertainment? Well, here we are doing just that. Thank you guys so much for the support. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for the reviews and the ratings and all that great stuff. And, uh, and we're going we're gonna to get into, we're going to tackle AIDS next week. It's a good one. So make sure and tune in for that. Thank you. say uh seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like <laughs> it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blowjob why mr seinfeld i'd love having you 